From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Treasurer Jim Chalmers released the mid-year budget update this week. Economic growth is forecast to slow and unemployment, which has ticked up a little in the latest figures, is set to rise over coming months. A small deficit will likely, however, move to a surplus in the May budget. For many ordinary Australians, having endured a hard 2023, 2024 will be another tough year. Jim Chalmers joins us today to talk about this and more. Jim Chalmers, you've placed great stress on the need for budget repair in your budgets and again in this update. But what do you say to critics who argue that the government is too focused on repair at a time when many Australians are struggling and need help? Why is it so important that you have put most of the revenue upgrades to the budget bottom line? Well, because we've got this inflation challenge in our economy and that's what's doing such damage to family budgets right around the country. And one of the ways that we put downward pressure on inflation uh, is to run a tight ship when it comes to the budget. But one of the things that I'm proudest about in this quite historic turnaround in the budget position that we've helped engineer with our responsible economic management is it hasn't come at the expense of helping people. We're doing, we're getting the budget in much better nick at the same time as we're rolling out tens of billions of dollars in cost of living help and investing in housing and skills and Medicare and the energy transformation. And so what we've demonstrated with our savings, with the way that we've approached these revenue upgrades, with the responsible approach that we've taken to the budget, is we can do all of these things at once. Uh, And that's what we're seeing at the same time as the budget's in much better nick. uh, It's not coming at the expense of those other important priorities. At the same time, though, I think you flagged that you will look at more cost of living measures before the May budget. Is this timing driven by the inflationary issue that inflation will have come down a bit more by then, or is it a political timing? Oh, it's economic. And it's partly because of the inflation challenge, and you're right, uh, that uh, we expect inflation will have moderated further by the time of the May budget. Uh, and that's obviously a good thing. But it's also because we're still, we've still got cost of living help rolling out right now. You know, the, the package that I announced in the budget is still rolling out right now. It's it's helpful. Uh, and we know from the Bureau of Statistics that it is helping to take some of the edge off these cost of living pressures. Still rolling out right now. Some of it's permanent. Some of it is still rolling out, whether it's the electricity bill, relief, or in other areas. And so uh, we never intended the mid-year budget update to be a mini budget. We intended it to be a stock take, a genuine update rather than another budget. Uh, and we will consider uh, whether Uh, The economic circumstances, the budget pressures, and most importantly, uh, the pressures on ordinary people around the country, Uh, we will consider all of that in the lead up to the May budget. And if there's more that we need to do and more that we can do, obviously we'll look to do it. I want to take you to the very small deficit for this financial year that's uh, forecast in the update. Are you being a bit coy here? Surely we are, in fact, headed to a surplus. Oh, I don't do coy, Michelle. Um, I'm pretty uh, blunt. <laughs> you about, sure about that? <laughs> well, I'm pretty blunt about uh, the situation as I see it. Um, there is a very small deficit uh, in the mid-year budget update for this year. 
but I, I've been honest with people and said it puts us within striking distance of a second surplus, uh, but we're not there yet. Uh, and there are good reasons to be really careful about these revenue projections. Uh, my predecessor, I think, frankly, humiliated himself wandering around this building with back in black mugs before uh, a budget surplus was assured. Uh, I'm not into that. Uh, I'm careful, I'm cautious. The Treasury takes a deliberately conservative view of revenue, and that's a good thing. There are good reasons to do that. Uh, we are very, very close to a second surplus, but we're not there yet. It could still go either way, uh, and that's why we're being careful about it. Of course, we should be politically fair here, shouldn't we? Your old employer, Wayne Swan, when Treasurer predicted surpluses and ended up with deficits, right? Well, I think that was a, a lesson, a demonstration, an example of how uh, revenue forecasts can be wrong in either direction. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm determined to be cautious and conservative about it. I've been upfront with people and said we are within striking distance of a second surplus. The one we delivered last year was the first one in 15 years, as you know, helping to take pressure off inflation when inflation was at its peak. Uh, and so we're within striking distance, but we're genuinely not there yet. We've got more work to do between now and May. Now, on the question of debt, you inherited a big lot of debt when you came to government. But when will we see debt in a satisfactory position, do you think? Uh, well, we've still got a lot of debt in the budget, but exactly. much, much less uh, than what we were left with. You know, we've made uh, stunning inroads, frankly, into the expected debt levels uh, in our budget. And that means that in a, over the course of the next decade or so, because of our efforts, uh, we expect to avoid, I think, $145 billion in interest repayments. And so uh, when you run a tight ship, when you're responsible and disciplined about the budget, one of the benefits of that is you can avoid uh, some of this debt that our predecessors left us with, and that will save us on interest costs. We expect uh, debt as a proportion of the economy to peak much lower than what we inherited. And that's a good thing. That's one of our motivations for getting the budget in better shape. Now, we all know the government's line about the stage three tax cuts that you say you plan no changes. And anyway, must be getting a bit late to make any changes. But you did try to get them recalibrated in your first budget. And the PM said no. In retrospect, do you still regret that you missed out then? Was this a missed opportunity? Oh, no, I don't see it that way. Um, and, you know, I would, I would challenge the characterisation of uh, those early months in office. Uh, I thought it was really important then, and I still think it's really important, that we give people a sense of the sorts of pressures on the budget that we're grappling with. Um, and I don't shy away from uh, a public conversation uh, about the priorities that people want to see in the budget. And I know that those tax cuts are contested. I know that there's a range of views about them, the full spectrum of views. Uh, and I, my position is that when people are engaged and they've got a view about economic policies and budget priorities, that's generally a good thing. And so I try to give, as I did around the time of our first budget, I try and give people a bit of a sense of the sorts of things that we're grappling with to invite that national debate, that public conversation about our priorities. You almost speak as though this is still uh, a live discussion that we should be having, but the government's message is that this is this discussion is over. I just get asked about it a lot. Uh, and I think as you were uh, intimating in your earlier question, 
uh, you know, our position hasn't changed on them. But I get asked about them a lot. Um, and one of the, the key questions around the mid-year budget update, because we've had this recovery in tax revenues, uh, is people are focused on bracket creep. And I have said uh, that governments from time to time have a role to play in giving back some bracket creep, and we'll see that. Uh, on the first of in the first weeks of July in the coming year, um, the reason why people are talking about bracket creep, the reason why there's a recovery in income taxes in the budget, is because more people are working and they're earning more. Both of those things are good things. We learned in this week's unemployment figures that under this government, more than 700,000 new jobs have been created. That's a record for a first-term government, and we're only halfway through. We've got wages moving again. Wages are growing at 4%, the highest for some time. And because of the combination of those things, more people working and more people earning more, uh, we see an increase in the income tax take. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, I get asked so frequently about things like bracket creep. Of course, though, it's a question of how much you give back. Oh, of course. And, you know, the other important consideration on that front is that the tax system is not the only way to provide cost of living relief. It's an important way. Uh, but what we've demonstrated in the time between the legislation of these tax cuts and uh, the when they are to come in in the middle of next year is we've found a whole bunch of other ways to support people on low and middle incomes. Uh, we've increased income support payments. We've changed childcare assistance. We've done a whole bunch of things, rent assistance, uh, which are more targeted towards people on low and middle incomes. And that's because there's more than one way uh, to try and take some of the edge off these cost of living pressures that people are facing. Now, for many people, this year has been financially all about interest rates. Looking back on the year, did you expect rates to rise so often and so high? Oh, I don't really like the second guess or, or um, get into the retrospectives on, on interest rates. I mean, higher interest rates are a reality. They started going up before the election and continued afterwards. Uh, and that is, they are a big reason why our economy is slowing. Uh, I think that's self-evident. Um, and really my job is to recognise the Reserve Bank's got uh, their job to do. My job is to engage in this fight against inflation on every front that I can. So cost of living help, getting the budget into better shape, migration strategy, infrastructure strategy, competition policy, investing in the supply side of the economy. We are engaged on every front in this fight against inflation. Uh, and that recognises the very different but complementary job that I have to do versus what the Reserve Bank has to do. And part of uh, cherishing and acknowledging their independence is to not second guess or preempt the decisions that they take independently. So you won't say whether you think they've peaked or not? No, I, I don't get into that uh, kind of uh, forecasting. The market thinks uh, that we are uh, at or near the peak of, uh, of the cash rate for the time being, but I'm very careful not to make predictions on my own behalf. Now, of course, you've made changes to the Reserve Bank. For ordinary Australians, what does this actually mean? Does this mean that monetary policy setting of rates will be better? Yeah, I certainly hope um, that by uh, adding a new board into the mix, a specialist board to decide on monetary policy, a governance board to run the bank and a payments board to run the payment system, uh, I think that does give us a better chance uh, to incorporate more views and more expertise uh, and to change the culture of the Reserve Bank 
so that it is best practice. And that's not a shot at the best of at the Reserve Bank of the past. It's to recognise uh, that we've had this review. It's given us a whole bunch of really quite smart recommendations that we're picking up and running with, and that is to modernise and renew and refocus the Reserve Bank so that it makes the best decisions it can uh, on behalf of the Australian people in their economy. So when will you announce the membership of the Monetary Policy Board and what sort of mix are you looking for there? Wouldn't it be somewhat counterproductive to just have people who are experts in monetary policy. Wouldn't that be too narrow? Well, we don't want it to be excessively narrow, uh, but we do want it to be uh, people with uh, experience and expertise. Um, We'd be looking to appoint these boards in the first half of next year. Um, One of the challenges that we now have to deal with is unfortunately the Liberals and Nationals voted with the Greens uh, to... Uh, delay the implementation or the legislation of these changes uh, by sending it to a committee, I think, until about March. Uh, But we will work away uh, behind the scenes to make sure that we've got a really good combination of talents. A lot of people, uh, um, in fact, we will be asking all of the current board members to serve on one of those two boards, governance or monetary policy boards, uh, because we want an element of continuity at the same time as we renew the bank. And so we'll look to formalise that the first half uh, of next year, uh, but we're conscious that the legislation is now delayed because of the politics being played in the Senate. But there would be some mix. They wouldn't all be uh, just experts in monetary policy on this monetary policy? Well, they need the right experience and expertise. I guess it depends how you define that. Um, But you can imagine that uh, a number of people from the current board uh, would find their way onto the monetary policy board and perhaps uh, a couple of them onto the governance board. We haven't finalised that, but we want some continuity on both boards. And we, we would be asking uh, the existing members of the board to serve on one of those two new boards that we're creating. Now, the government announced its migration policy this week, and essentially that's designed to halve the intake over a couple of years. What do you see as the economic implications of this? And in the long term, are you a big Australia person? Oh, no, I don't use, the, I don't use that terminology. Um, I, I want to really um, pay tribute to my colleague, Claire O'Neill, and uh, the other colleagues engaged in this migration strategy. This is a really important piece of economic reform, which recognises that migration has been a source of strength in our society and in our economy for a long time, not the last, just the last couple of years, but that migration needs to be in our national economic interest. Uh, that means getting the settings right when it comes to skills, when it comes to permanency and all of the issues that uh, Claire and the other colleagues have tackled. And so I see this as a really important foundational piece in our economic reform effort. It recognises that migration's got an important role to play, but not as a substitute for training, uh, not as a substitute for Australian workers, but in a complementary way. And when we implement the um, proposals that Claire has put forward uh, earlier this week, I think it will make a major difference uh, to our economy and our society. uh, And it will mean that we've got our settings uh, carefully calibrated so that migration is in our national economic interest. When you say a major difference, can you just tease this out? Well, yeah. I mean, clearly one of the big priorities that Claire's had is to make our economy more productive. That goes to the the skills mix and it goes to the migration mix, for example. Um, You know, the way that there is a streamlining 
uh, of visas, for example, in areas of high need, that's obviously going to be really important so long as it's not a substitute for training or for Australian workers. But there are a whole bunch of ways uh, where making the migration system more efficient, uh, more flexible, more responsive to our needs, faster, uh, these are the sorts of things that can shift the needle, I think, you know, when it comes to uh, the kind of economic growth that we want to create as we get out of this period of weakness. Now, you wrote this week that, and I quote, everything we do is about making our economy more modern and that this would benefit middle Australia. What does this actually mean? What are the modernisation priorities? Yeah, so if you think about... Uh, what unites everything that we're trying to do? We're trying to modernise the economy so that we can maximise our national advantages in a way that delivers for middle Australia. And what that means is to recognise we've wasted a decade when it comes to economic reform. We've got an economy which is not uh, sufficiently modern and forward-looking to make the most of the opportunities that are before us. It's to recognise that the type of economy which delivered us the last generation of prosperity is not going to be exactly the kind of economy that's going to deliver us the next one. And so if you go right across our agenda, we need to modernise our human capital base. We need to modernise the way that we generate and transmit energy. We need to modernise our industrial base, uh, our capital flows, our markets and payment systems, our economic institutions, as we were just talking about. Really right across the board, there's an opportunity for us to modernise uh, and, and make and renew and revitalise and make more forward and future focused uh, the key parts of our economy. We broadly know where the opportunities are going to lie for Australia. The energy transformation, adapting and adopting technology, the human capital piece, uh, superannuation and the way that capital flows in our economy. We've got these huge advantages that we need to make the most of. But in order to do that, our economy's got to be more modern, whether it's our migration settings, whether it's our skills and training and education systems. Uh, there are heaps of opportunities to make our economy uh, more modern. And if we do that, we'll maximise our advantages. We'll lift living standards in middle Australia. On an issue that's important to many ordinary people, a Senate inquiry has been set up into supermarket prices to investigate potential price gouging. What do you think will come out of this inquiry and should more be done to limit these companies' market power? Well, I think the Senate inquiry is a really good step. I support it completely uh, because... Uh, more transparency when it comes to the sorts of prices which have such a deep impact on family budgets. The more transparency, the better, as far as I'm concerned. And so I think this is a really important inquiry, and that's why we voted for it. Uh, the supermarkets obviously shouldn't be above um, uh, having their pricing strategies held up to the light. You know, I, I'm, I'm relatively engaged in my local community and I know when people are going through the checkout how much anxiety they have uh, about the price of a trolley full of groceries to feed the kids. Uh, and so this transparency is, is a good thing. We want to make sure uh, that the supermarket chains, as inflation moderates for the things that they pay for, we want to make sure that the prices moderate for the things that ordinary uh, people uh, pay for in local communities. Uh, we understood that when prices were really galloping uh, for things like shipping and, and all of those things that supermarkets rely on, 
those costs were passed on. We want to make sure any savings are passed on as well as inflation moderates. Well, just on this question of um, pressure that people are under, what sort of year do you think Australians will be looking at next year? Will they feel better off in 12 months' time than they do now? That's certainly the expectation. Um, If you look at the forecasts in the mid-year budget update, Uh, The Treasury expects inflation to moderate further. Uh, They expect uh, wages to grow and we expect uh, annual real wages growth uh, as well. You know, we've had real wages growth for the last two quarters, which is pretty good given uh, when we came to office, real wages were negative 3.4%. Now we've had two positive quarters of real wage growth and we expect uh, real wage growth to be more sustained next year. And so uh, there will be an element of difficulty in the global economy in 2024. Uh, Obviously, inflation will still be higher than we'd like, but it will be moderating. Uh, We're getting wages growing again. Uh, Real wages are expected to move again, and that's a good thing. Uh, But the pressures that people have felt in 2023 won't miraculously disappear on the 1st of January 2024. And that's why we are so focused on rolling out this cost of living help, getting the budget in better nick, uh, and building the kind of uh, economy that lifts living standards into the future. Before we finish up, I just want to ask you about how you see your role as treasurer. Obviously, you've got a, a very central job, or your central job is on the economy, but you also seem to expand out into other areas. We've seen this particularly on energy uh, this year. And I noticed that you're not reluctant to to comment on other issues. You, you don't sort of be, hide behind, uh, oh, I won't say anything on that. How do you see this role? I think traditionally, and, and you know this as well as anybody, that traditionally the Treasury role has been a relatively expansive one. Uh, and I don't see um, a demarcation when it comes to things like the energy transformation. I work very closely with Chris Bowen doing a magnificent job as the minister. Uh, but that's a key piece of economic reform. And on the energy transformation rests a lot of our uh, prospects for the economy into the future. And so I work closely with Chris. I work closely with Claire O'Neill on migration strategy. That's a key economic reform as well. Yeah, we hunt as a pack in this government. You know, we work very collegiately, very collaboratively uh, on areas where we've got an interest. And, and those couple of examples I gave, I think, are good examples of where the relevant ministers take the lead, but I play an enthusiastic role uh, in helping to make sure that the government gets it right. Uh, I think there are so many issues before us that involve uh, multiple you know, clusters of ministers in our cabinet. That's how we like to work across portfolios. Uh, no not, sensitive toes? No, no. Well, no, none of these issues kind of fit neatly into some kind of uh, you know, predetermined uh, silo of activity. Uh, and, you know, I work respectfully and closely with, with colleagues on the issues that they care about and the issues that we care about as a government, and I like to think uh, I play a helpful role in making sure that we land the policies that they uh, are proposing to the Cabinet. Just finally, last year you used some of the summer break to write an essay on the future of capitalism. Do you have any ambitious plans for summer work this time? Oh, I've promised. Uh, I've promised Laura and the kids no essay this summer. Um, I uh, so no, there won't be. There won't be a similar bit of work. I, I will. I will do my best to take it easy this Christmas. I'm not always great at that, uh, but I'll, I will do my best. But I can. 
I can commit to Laura and uh, Leo and Annabelle and Jack and to all of your listeners uh, that I won't be staying up half the night uh, for a few weeks around Christmas to write another essay for the monthly. Jim Chalmers, good luck with the relaxation project and thank you for being with us in this last politics podcast for the year. Thank you to my producer, Ben Roper. We'll be back next year with more interviews, but goodbye for now and happy Christmas, happy new year to everyone. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.